0: We are live here on Planetary Health First, Mars Next, and this is amazing. I feel so lucky, fortunate today. We have an amazing guest here, Susanna Fox, and she's the author of Rebel Health. That, is, that just gets me excited. Before I even was able to read it, I was excited, and I have read it. I, I have been able to read it. I have not shared it, Susanna. It was on PDF, and I have ordered it. I've early ordered it on Amazon and it took me a while because I had to figure it out how to do it. But it's ordered. <laughs> and so, you. yeah, this is all. let me just share with you a little bit about Susanna Fox, who, who, who hasn't uh, met her yet or heard her yet. And if you haven't heard her yet, you got to hear her. Um, she's been doing a lot of amazing things. Uh, she is a board member at SmartCheck and PBC PBC. She's a board member at Cambian Health Solutions, and she's a principal a principal excuse me internet geologist. That is super cool, and uh, she was a former Archangel, and I'm sure she's still amazing friends with Alex Drain, doing amazing work still. She's you know total collaborator, and uh, former HHS. The CTO role and uh, really a lifelong entrepreneur, resident in, uh, entrepreneur and resident at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, uh, Pew Research. She was uh, doing a lot of research and director. And uh, don't want to get too much into that because we have a lot of ground to cover and she can share more about her. But it it is great to have you here and you're going to share more about what you're doing with your book and. Anyway, I'm so glad we got you here today. So tell us a little bit about you and let's take it away now.
1: Oh, thank you. So you covered it in my bio. I um, started out as a researcher and I got advice really early on from one of my mentors, Tom Ferguson. When uh, he heard that we at the Pew Research Center were trying to study the intersection of healthcare and technology, he said, you are never going to be able to understand this space if you don't spend time with patients, survivors and caregivers, especially people who are living with something challenging, whether it's a rare disease, a life-changing diagnosis, his best advice to me was to spend time in online communities and embed with them to see the future uh, because people who are, who are living with these uh, really significant health challenges are often the first to try and use a new technology to get access to their data. And if you follow them, if you follow what I love to call the rebels of healthcare, then you're gonna see the future that the rest of us will be living in. They're usually about 10 years ahead of the rest of us.
0: And this is this is great. And so do we start with rebel health the seeker is that who this is that who you mentioned. Should we start with that prototype?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, the way the book came about is that um, I I had this uh, this body of work I had written. Gosh, I think fifty white papers at the Pew Research Center, and had gone on to continue my research um, uh, as an independent researcher, and so I had twenty years of field notes of looking at how people are using the internet and technology to connect with each other um, to solve problems. What I realized as I moved into more leadership roles, whether it's uh, in um, the consulting work that I've done, in the role that I had in the federal government as the chief technology officer at HHS, When I started to tell people stories about the patients that I had met in my work as a researcher, I found often that people didn't really believe me. They said, what are you talking about? How is it that people are hacking into their medical devices? How is it that people are solving these problems together? And so what I realized is that I wanted to write a field guide. I wanted to help people to understand who are the people that you'll meet when you intersect with the patient-led revolution. And the first group that I decided to write about were the seekers. Seekers are people who get knocked down by something in their life, something in healthcare. They receive a life-changing diagnosis. Their child is diagnosed with something, their, their parent or loved one. Um, people react in a couple different ways. Some people react to adversity in healthcare uh, by giving up, by saying, well, that's, that's it for me. Um, I'm going to do what the doctor says or, um, or, or not do what the doctor says, but, but not go out and seek answers. But sometimes there is some kind of like a glimmer of hope. They, they might see something that makes them say, I'm going to go out and see if I can find more answers. I'm going to go out and and seek the answers that I am not getting from mainstream healthcare, and that's that that spark to take action is one of the things that I think all of us in healthcare need to honor and and need to create in people. So um, yeah, the first group are seekers, and I think everybody um, deserves to step into their power and become a seeker when they need to.
0: Well. You definitely excited me when I was reading the book. It's so accessible, uh, but you don't do anything to um, lessen the, the, the actual importance. And it's so, uh, it, it really made me want to look at my surroundings And what can I do to activate myself or also understand the framework? You give us the seekers, the networkers, the solvers, the champions. And then you give us that grid, that matrix that's continued in each chapter with where we are on that. And uh, I just really, uh, I feel like the book that you provided is accessible to caregivers to families to patients to healthcare administrators to leaders to to people that are you know the hackers the open source community like how can we make healthcare better so i'm like man i want to be part of this rebel health you know i was like are you starting your own company are you like doing this like book first company you know so I'm going to stop there.
1: Well, I I'm excited. I, this is exactly the reaction that I want. I want everybody who reads it, no matter where they sit, to get excited about what has been um, an underground revolution. Something that has grown up between the cracks of the healthcare system. I think everybody has the opportunity to to step into their power, whether you're a patient or a caregiver, or whether you have influence and and are fed up with the status quo of the current way of doing things and want to tap into the energy that's being created by the rebels of healthcare. That's exactly what I want. Um, And I do want to help companies and organizations who who want to understand this better, I want to help them tap into that and and introduce these stakeholders to each other. There are so many incredible patient-led, caregiver-led groups that are waiting to help contribute to the design of the products and services that a lot of people are creating and are wondering why isn't this working? Um, And it's because they haven't yet involved patients, survivors, and caregivers in the design of the tool, which is what we really need to do.
0: The other thing I loved you, the whole book resonates community, community. And and as a Healthcare, wherever you are on that journey, also the power of peer-to-peer, and you use so much evidence. You have so many, uh, you know, everything's referenced. All the different books that you've written, the research, um, and evidence.
1: One of the reasons I wrote the book was to try and pull all the evidence that that I've collected over the past twenty plus years. What I tried to do was was pull it all together. Um, and, um, it actually, one of the challenges that I had is that, uh, my editor at MIT press said, half the book can't be your footnotes. <laughs> so they, they actually made me cut my footnotes down by like, I don't know. I had, I think I had to cut more than half, maybe two thirds of my footnotes. But what I'm planning to do on my, uh, on my personal website, SusannaFox.com, I'm planning to put up my whole literature review because, um, this is a movement that is based on science. This is something that um, there, there's been incredible, uh, an, a, an incredible amount of evidence that's been built over the years to show that peer-to-peer healthcare really works for people. The evidence is particularly strong in um, recovery, um, whether it's substance use disorder or um, eating disorder, mental health challenges. Peer to peer is actually part of the playbook um, and, and up and down um, at, at every level in mental health. And I want to see that spread throughout uh, all of healthcare because I think the power of peer to peer connection is incredibly strong.
0: Well, you grabbed my attention immediately when I was reading the book. I, I just couldn't put it down. And I loved how you started with the glucose uh, monitor and the fact that it wasn't loud enough to wait. I didn't realize they deathbed or uh, And the fact that that had to be hacked and the whole data and owning the data and all the different you had throughout the books, uh, many references to that ongoing. Um, but it just just from the get-go uh you got my attention and it just was so evident like if someone's a, a, a biotech maker or med tech maker that couldn't raise the volume to the alarm
1: yeah yeah i'd love to tell that story so so the story that that you're referencing is um a dana lewis uh who uh was living in seattle and um her her mom was living in alabama and because the alarm on Dana's continuous glucose monitor, um, uh, it, so d- let me back up. Dana lives with um, type one diabetes. She requires insulin. Um, and if, the, if your blood sugar goes low in the middle of the night, the continuous glucose monitor, which is embedded um, subcutaneously, is supposed to alarm. It's supposed to be loud enough to wake you up so that you can um, take care of yourself. Um, if you go low, if your blood sugar goes low in the middle of the night and you don't wake up, there's a syndrome called dead in bed. And it's, it's almost difficult for me to say it out loud because um, it, is, it is so shocking. Um, but what happened is that um, Dana in Seattle Would ask her mom um, that if she doesn't, if she Dana doesn't call every morning, then her mom in Alabama would call um, somebody to go check on Dana in Seattle. And this is not a good system uh, because the CGM that Dana was living with, the alarm wasn't loud enough because Dana is such a deep sleeper. Dana wrote to the manufacturer to say, hey, is there a way that you can make this alarm louder? And the manufacturer wrote back and said, no, we aren't hearing other complaints. We're not going to change it. And so what happened is that um, John Kostick, who was a dad of a kid with type 1 diabetes, who had some engineering skills, he figured out how to basically hack into his son's continuous glucose monitor, free the data and send it to his Apple Watch. He posted how he did this on Twitter, he shared it, Um, and Dana saw that. And using um, basically a a little processor called a a Raspberry Pi, Dana was able to hack together a louder alarm. So her emergency backup system was not her mom down in Alabama, it was her own Hacked together, self created uh, alarm system. And this is an example of how Dana was a, a seeker. She went out looking for a solution. She was also a networker. She was on Twitter and was using this, um, this Diabetes Rebel Alliance uh, Twitter community to trade ideas. They call it the Diabetes Online Community. Um, and thanks to John Kostick, who's a solver, and in, in this is the lexicon of, of the book, The Rebel Health Archetypes, um, he figured out a solution. And then because of the age that we're living in, was able to share it online so that somebody like Dana could build on his innovation. Um, and that just kicked off like a whole avalanche a beautiful avalanche of innovation in diabetes technology.
0: You know, I think we're very fortunate for you, Susanna Fox, because I'm, I was trying to understand how this came about. I know it's a 20 year journey over a 20 year journey, but you're anthropologists and there's something powerful about user design, anthropology and technology, and then the, the subject matter expertise that you've built over the years. And so there's often things that happen where it's too hyper-focused and alienates. And this one book is one that I feel is a unifying uh, book for if you have Parkinson, if you have cancer, if you're part of the rare disease community, if you're like totally tech coder and you want to, I mean, it, so to me, somehow with your background, your eclectic, you are the person to write this Rebel Health, and and I I love, I I'm 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 just can't wait to see what becomes of of this book and uh, the all, all the different organizations and groups that find greater purpose. Uh, it's not just you know. So I'll stop there. I'm
1: Well, thank you, Um, and and thanks for mentioning anthropology. I want to encourage um, more students to study anthropology because I loved it as a major because um, it's a field of study that gives you license to be politely curious about other people. It gives you the skills to go into a community, um, hopefully with some humility, so that you listen first, and you learn about what people are doing in their own lives before giving people the idea that, that you should come in and, and tell them what to do. Anthropologists go in with respect and humility, uh, modern anthropology goes in with respect and humility to learn from people. And that's that, thank you so much for, for uh, giving that shout out. And And I feel so privileged that I got to spend time with so many patients, survivors and caregivers who have trusted me with their stories. And it's that sense of responsibility that I have for all those thousands of people who answered my questions Mm -hmm. that I need to represent them and to help everyone to understand how powerful it is when you can connect with each other.
0: And and I was just, when you brought in towards the end, your own caregiver journey, you know, taking care of, um, tell me his name. Mitsuru,
1: Mitsuru Yasuhara.
0: And and so that to me is the power that this book was very anthropology, you know, very research driven, uh, very objective evidence-based, but you also were able to validate even more from your own perspective and your own journey. And, um, and it was so eclectic. Like I put up on the screen, Cajun Navy. And to me, the FEMA had lots to learn because of that. And it's like a crowdsource. So I'll stop there. You go ahead and tell us why the Cajun Navy is important for us in healthcare.
1: Thank you. Yeah. What I tried to do was bring in some unexpected examples that people may have heard of, um, or would inspire them to, to think about healthcare in a different way. Um, So, um, as we know, you know, hurricanes hit in um, the American South quite often, um, and before the emergency responders can get there, before the lights and sirens of official uh, emergency response can get there, it is going to be your neighbors um, who are there, and that's true in any natural disaster. That's whether there's um, whether it's an earthquake, a hurricane, a tornado. Your real first responders are your neighbors, the people who are around you. And this was formalized in Louisiana. Um, uh, it, was, it was the brainchild of someone who saw that people were not being rescued. People were standing on their rooftops waiting for help. And yet the federal response, um, for, for all the reasons that that you can imagine, um, the federal response was was slower than than the um, than the neighbors could be, and the neighbors in this case uh, became the whole the whole region of southern Louisiana, where a call went out over the radio to say if you have a boat, whether it's a fishing boat or a pleasure boat, um, let's go down to New Orleans and start rescuing people. And they called it they they called it the Cajun Navy. And it was coordinated um, using radio. People would call in from their rooftops. um, And then people would would radio out to um, people in their boats to let them know where to go. And it was this collective action where people were brave enough to step forward and say, I'm going to help. I have the means to help. I have a boat. I have these skills and i want to help my neighbors and and that's the spirit of the patient led revolution in healthcare that there's so many people who have skills who have knowledge who say i want to help i've been through something and now i want to help the person that's behind me on the path and that can be i've been through um chemotherapy and and i want to help people who are going through that now because There's all kinds of tips that could make their lives easier. And again, this isn't taking anything away from uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which eventually did get there and saved a lot of people. But it's saying there's special skills that a citizen could have in that situation. And, And if we don't tap into that collective resilience, we're leaving half the team on the bench. And that was true in the hurricane. Situation, and that's true in healthcare. If we leave patients, survivors, and caregivers out of this conversation of healthcare innovation, we are leaving half the team on the bench.
0: Great segue to We Are Not Waiting.
1: Yeah, so We Are Not Waiting is a hashtag, um, and, it, and it loops back to the story of Dana Lewis and John Kostick um, because. the the Diabetes Rebel Alliance, um, which was formed on Twitter, on social media, on Facebook, and then started meeting in real life, um, thanks to Amy Tendrick, who started hosting uh, meetings, annual meetings, where people would get together. They were people living with type 1 diabetes, caregivers of kids who were living with type 1 diabetes, she also made sure to bring in um, people who were experts in technology. She brought in executives from the diabetes um, device companies, and she brought in people from the FDA, the regulators, um, so that there was no way for any one stakeholder to say to point fingers and say, "Well, we can't do this because of the FDA or we can't do this because of the companies." Amy Tendrick was saying, no, no, let's all get together. And um, what came out of one of those meetings um, was this awesome phrase of we are not waiting. We're not going to wait for the government. We're not going to wait for the companies. We're not going to wait for anybody else to innovate on our behalf. It was Lane Desborough, who is a diabetes dad, who said it. And then Howard Look, another diabetes dad, who popularized it as a hashtag. And um, it's been picked up and it's, if, you, if you search online today with that hashtag, we are not waiting, you'll see that the community is still rallying around it. And they've made incredible progress because of the ability to gather together and say, hey, wait a second, I'm not the only one who's incredibly frustrated with this situation. And by the way, I'm not the only one who has ideas about how to fix it. There's thousands of us all across the world, um, and they're working together to create better technology for diabetes.
0: Well, that was that was powerful. Tell us about. I, I you go through so many collaborative efforts, so many organizations referenced, and I can't even list all of them, nor can we talk about all of them. Do you wanna just mention some that come to mind as we speak? Sure, so gosh, um,
1: you know, some of the work that's been done, um, you know, I, I wanna make sure that we, that we talk about the, the grassroots work that happened throughout the 20th century um, that allowed the, the, the current patient-led revolution to thrive. Um, I'm thinking here about um, Alcoholics Anonymous which was founded in the 1930s um, and, and, and created this idea that people can recover from substance use disorder together, that, that peer-to-peer is a, is a really um, strong foundation for recovery. Um, that, again, that began in the 1930s and has continued with the advent of Narcotics Anonymous and others. I'm thinking also about um, La Leche League in the 1950s. Um, This was, um, you know, a group of women who at the time, breastfeeding, um, and it's almost amazing to think about it now because we know the science of breastfeeding is so strong, the evidence for the positive aspects of it. Um, But these women were saying, uh, we want to encourage other women to breastfeed and so Um, We're going to gather together peer-to-peer and teach women who are being discouraged by their doctors and by their communities. To They're they're being discouraged. We're going to teach them peer-to-peer how to do this. Um, I'm also thinking about the Black Panther Party, who recognized um, in the 1960s and 70s that um, there's been a failure of data collection for um, sickle cell anemia. And so they created a community-led organization to collect data about sickle cell and that led to new federal funding to study it and now by the way gosh you know 50 years later we've got some incredible treatments coming out for sickle cell and you think about how it started as a community-led organization um, to draw people's attention to something that was otherwise um, being ignored frankly and this is the power that we now have. Um, we you know there's that great phrase, "We stand on the shoulders of giants. The, the current patient-led revolution is built on the foundations of the radical health movements of our past. Let's honor that past, but then upgrade the tools so that people are able to um, move faster um, toward discovery together.
0: Rare diseases.
1: They are my inspiration. <laughs> so um, when I started doing field work, uh, I, I initially um, went into online communities of people li- living with cancer. Um, I, another early study that I did um, was uh, survivors of um, brain tumor and brain injury And then I got to partner with the National Organization for Rare Disorders, NORD, on a study. Um, It was in 2007 and I I published the paper in 2008. And I have to tell you, um, at that time we weren't all working at home, but I took that work home with me because I, in reading the responses to those surveys and in spending time in the communities of people living with rare disease, I'm not ashamed to say that I spent a lot of time weeping.
0: Mm.
1: And I thought, this is not necessarily where I want to be doing this work, sitting in an office in a cubicle. Um, and so I did a lot of my uh, data analysis for that study um, looking at the impact of rare disease. Um, I did a lot of that work at home. and. Um, that's where it was because of that study that i coined the term peer to peer healthcare mm-hmm. because i saw the power of people who were alone mm-hmm. they you know they would receive this diagnosis or their child would receive this diagnosis and they might be the only person in their town maybe the only person in their state who has this diagnosis but they could go online and find hundreds of people all over the world um, and um, get access to hope, mm-hmm. get access to support, get access to ideas for everyday challenges. Cause a lot of rare diseases come with um, physical disability, like low dexterity. Um, and so there's everyday challenges that, that um, these peer groups in rare diseases can help with as well as the incredible scientific breakthroughs that come when people with rare diseases are able to gather together, draw attention to a problem, raise money um, to fund the science. Um, and and we owe them such a debt because they're out there pioneering mm-hmm. um, the sharing of medical records. They mm-hmm. were out there pioneering the idea that patients themselves should not only have access to their own data, every form of data, but that patients themselves should have control over their data. And that's, I'm really inspired by that.
0: Would you like to share with any of the individuals that you wrote about in your book about their specific story about rare disease?
1: Yeah, gosh. One of the communities where I've spent time is the um, community of people living with Mobius syndrome. Mm -hmm. And um, I've uh, been privileged to be able to go in person to um, their conferences and meet people in person. Mobius syndrome is, um, it's a one in a million diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, It presents with full facial paralysis, um, which means that when a baby is born, Um, the baby is not able to latch on to a nipple. And so you immediately have this challenge of how are we going to feed a baby that can't latch on? Um, And in talking to parents of kids with children who are living with Mobius syndrome, they talk about how important it was to, um, to go online and learn, for example, from the cleft palate community. So that again is a congenital condition where um, babies have challenges with with feeding, and the cleft palate community has figured out workarounds for how to feed a baby that then can be shared with the Mobius syndrome community, and that that kind of peer to peer, just as you were saying that this is, you know, this is what I tried to create is a book that that goes across all the silos of healthcare, mm-hmm. that that um, and this is an example where if you are having a, a dexterity challenge, which is also presented in uh, Mobius syndrome or a challenge with feeding a baby, um, unfortunately a lot of babies um, need to have a feeding tube installed. Um, that's something that um, that a lot of people are dealing with and therefore a lot of people can learn from that. So yeah, I the, the Mobius syndrome community is, is one um, that, has has taught me so much and I'm so grateful to them.
0: So with Rebel Health coming out in February, what is your hope?
1: Wow, my hope is that everyone steps into their power. That if you or a loved one get sick, get hit hard by something in healthcare that either you step into your power and become a seeker, networker, solver, or champion, whatever it is that you need to do to solve that problem. But I also want to say you might be exhausted. You might be overwhelmed. It doesn't necessarily have to be you. It can be someone you love. You can recruit somebody like that to your team. But what I hope is that my book describes a path toward a revolution in healthcare that allows people to contribute to their own well being. So that's one stream, one hope. The other hope that I have is that everyone who um, sits in a place of power and influence in healthcare, whether um, that's an executive at a, a hospital or whether that's someone who works in the federal government or in state government, Everyone who wants to create positive change, what I hope is that they'll read Rebel Health and they'll see that they can step into their power as a champion. They can open the door so that patients and survivors and caregivers can help them with their mission. Um, The the Rebel Health Alliance is standing by to help uh, people who work in public health they're standing by to help people who are designing new devices and services. Um, it's going to be a competitive advantage um, in this next phase of healthcare innovation if you are able to tap into the patient-led revolution.
0: You know, when I read it, I and I it just popped up as we as you were sharing your hope, is the empathy, the kindness that's brought as a byproduct. I I gathered a lot of the power of wanting to be more empathetic to myself, Mm -hmm. to the health system and to everyone here. And, And so what action can I take? And I'm looking for the rebel health point two, where what now can I do to get in that cause? Or what cause is it? Is it with my own health? um and or with my father who's 91 who has uh dementia and you know uh heart failure you know that's on hospice what can i do to be engaged and active and uh so i can i, I just know that i'm excited for the expectation and what's to come from it
1: thank you um I actually didn't set out to to include my own story, but was encouraged by my friend Barbara Spindell, who helped me in in editing the book. She finished reading the book and it didn't have that last chapter about my own experience as a caregiver. And she said, you need to put yourself in this now. As a researcher, I'd been trained never to put myself in the story. And she encouraged me and I'm really glad that she did Mm -hmm. because your response, your, your, your feeling that, that the book calls for empathy for ourselves and actually empathy for the health system. I hadn't thought about that way. Thank you. <laughs> um, but in terms of what what you can do um, as a fellow caregiver for elders, um, I, I, I was on the team to care for my dad until the end of his life. And then I, I cared for my dear Mitsuru until the end of his life one thing that you can do um, is to think about um, who is in need and how can you serve the person in need and keeping them at the center. Um, one, uh, one tool that is, is really easy to do um, and, but kind of helps you to focus is um, something called the circle theory. Um, and maybe we can link to it in the show notes. I'll send you a mm-hmm. link to the article and it's the idea that the person at the center of a circle a care circle is the person who's in the bed you know the person who's really really sick and in this case it would be your dad and then there's an outer circle of who are the people who are directly supporting your dad um and then outside of that is a circle of and who are the supporters for them and it and it goes out from there in concentric circles and the key is to only Um, you, you can only complain (laughs) to the outer circle. You can't dump in stress. You want to dump in care and comfort and empathy, um, and complaints go the other way. Um, the other thing that you could do is, um, I, I mentioned this in the book, there's this wonderful tool, um, called the care map. Um, and it was developed by my friend Raj Meta, and um, you can look it up, Atlas of Care. And um, that's another way to visualize the um, the care network that surrounds someone in need. And it does. You shouldn't wait for a crisis. Mitsuru and I actually created a care map when he was well, um, and you can define who helps care for you in any way that you want. Um, And so actually what what, um, Mitsuru had on there, in addition to um, all of our relatives, his relatives back in Japan, our relatives here in the States, um, his immediate neighbors who turned out to be incredible during the pandemic and when he got sick. um, But another person on Mitsuru's care map, which was kind of unexpected to me, was um, the plumber. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... The plumber um, that that he um, and my cousin Anne had used for their the whole 50 years that they lived in this house. Uh, well the plumber wasn't around the whole time, but this was a plumber that like really knew the house and really knew Mitsuru. And so the plumber was on the care map. Mm-hmm. And then when Mitsuru got sick and we actually needed some help, you know, you know, of course everything goes wrong at once. So like, you know, the toilet on the second floor and the sink start leaking (laughs) and I'm caring for Mitsuru, who's, who's, you know, at home on hospice. And I call the plumber and the plumber shows up. And here's a guy who um, not only fixed the toilet and the sink, Mm -hmm. but I walked him out to his car and he turned to me and said, I see you. I see what you're doing thank you for caring for me through. Mm-hmm. And Michael, I got to tell you, I burst into tears. The plumber was mm-hmm. the first person to say, thank you. And I see you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How, how might we do that more in our lives? Yeah. How might we acknowledge each other?
0: I love that. And I, I will tell you a shout out to my plumber, Marlo. I, I tell you seriously, a humble Jesus was a carpenter. And, and I'm telling you, sometimes these plumbers, a good one, not the one that owns the big franchise and sends out all, but the one who owns and operates. I mean, this guy's helped me, too. And I, I don't know if he'll be part of my care map. But anyway, <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm kind of going off topic. But anyway, yeah, yeah. This,
1: this loops back. This loops back to the Cajun Navy, right? Like mm-hmm. this loops back to the idea that like we don't know where help is going to come from. Like we mm-hmm. don't know where you know where we're going to be when we need help and who's going to step forward, and what what I would love to see is just a continuation of this public conversation about care and about empathy. And you know, I'll I'll uh, give credit to the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, mm-hmm. who's who's started this public conversation about loneliness. Yeah. Um, you know, we all need to be ready to step forward. When we're called on.
0: Oh, I love that. Well, this has been so great. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad that you said yes. I feel so honored and privileged uh, because, uh, you know, you started a podcast from your, you know, COVID makeshift bedroom uh, and you name it Planetary Health First, Mars Next, and people have no idea what it is. But really, it's about having people like you that are doing real stuff that are having the right conversations and writing a book that, you know, I've already paid for it's ready. It's coming. It's on Amazon. It's a hard textbook and I'm going to highlight and white out it and recommend it. And uh, so anyway, Susanna, it's your last, we're kind of coming to the end. Tell us, uh, shout it on the mountains from planet earth to planet Mars. What, what can you tell our audience viewers uh, wrapping it up?
1: Join the patient-led revolution. If you are a business person or a policy person, it's going to be a competitive advantage. Get in on it now. If you are a patient, survivor, or caregiver, reach out. We all have something to learn, and we all have something to teach.
0: Awesome. Well, you heard it first today. On Planetary Health First, Mars Next, Susanna Fox, the author of Rebel Health, and you need to get your copy. And uh, thank you so much, everyone. Peace be with you and to good times in the future. You heard it on Planetary.